Hello and welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast. I'm Andy Davidson and I'm here with my co-host Carly Harrod. Hi Carly. Hi Andy. And today we are out and about again, as you can probably hear, because there is a lot of birdsong around. Where are we today, Andy? We're actually at one of our national nature reserves, right on the border with uh, Dorset and Wiltshire, actually. I can see Dorset and Wiltshire from here. Um, and it's Martin Down National Nature Reserve. So why is Martin Down a national nature reserve? We've got lots of local nature reserves, but what are national nature reserves? Well, we've talked previously about sites of special scientific interest, the triple SIs. Um, and they're supposed to be the best examples of those habitats in the country. And then basically the National Nature Reserves are normally the best of those. So they are really special places. And we're up here today because this month we've been talking about grasslands and meadows and all of the brilliant pollinating insects that we can find. And Martin Down is great for that, isn't it? Oh, it's just fantastic. I mean... We were Abstin down last month and uh, we were talking about fragmentation. There's a tiny little pocket of this sort of grass and left there. Um, and um, this is what Abstin down probably would have looked like a couple of hundred years ago. So if we look around, I can see, looking north, I can see woodlands in the far distance, probably just over a mile away, probably a mile and a half. This site is about three miles long by about just under a mile wide at its widest. So looking northwards into where Wiltshire is, I can see grassland all the way with bits of scrub and there's loads of flowers on the hawthorn there as well. If I turn around looking south, we can look up towards the top of the hill there and the grass extends all the way up there. So it's a huge area of this special grassland. It's a huge site and I am very excited to be here because I absolutely love butterflies and all I can see is butterflies and I just want to chase them and photograph them. But I'm going to be very careful and stay on the paths. Yeah, because I mean, there's loads of ground nesting birds. We've just seen some orchids here. It's very, very rich habitat. I mean, I can see um, birds foot trefoil and kidney vetch and um, loads of different plants here. Cowslips. It is a really, really, really rich site. It is. And to tell us all about Martin Down, we are joined by Mike today. We were joined today by Mike Fussell, who's the ranger here. Hi, Mike. Hi, Andy. So, I mean, it's a lovely day here today. I'm glad we weren't here last week because it was chucking it down with rain here. Absolutely, yeah. We had a, a really wet May up until about, well, I suppose a week ago. And then it's turned into this. It's glorious. And, and suddenly we need our sun hats and all our sun cream on. But it is lovely. And it's, as Carly was saying, it's alive with butterflies and bees here, isn't it? Yep. It really is sort of uh, taking off at the moment. You know, it's for a slow start this year. Uh, we've now got all sort of classic chalk down and butterflies coming out and uh, and the flora is looking fantastic too. It's also very special for the birds as well isn't it because you've got I mean it's one of the few places now in Hampshire you can see things like turtle doves, grey partridge, um, corn bunting and also occasionally quail. Yeah yeah I heard quail just last week. Um, We get uh, well classic sort of downland birds like or farmland birds really, um, skylarks which are all over the down. Corn buntings, we get calling uh, from the bushes around the outsides of the paddocks. And if you walk through the paddocks, you're very likely to flush a pair of grey partridge. And if you're really lucky, you might hear quail calling. They've got that fantastic call, which I'm not going to try and imitate. <laughs> I'll have a go, I think. So, wee, wee, wee. Yeah, that's wee, it. Wee, 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 wee. And then, of course, um, we get the turtle doves coming in at this time of year. Uh, all the way from Africa 
and um, we're one of the few places left in, the, well, in this part of the country anyway, that still got um, turtle doves breeding. Because you were talking about being farmland birds, but a lot of those birds aren't really found in the general countryside. But they've massively declined, haven't they? They have, yeah. Something like, I don't know, 90 plus percent decline in the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years, I suppose. Although it's a massive area of um, grassland here, we are surrounded by farmland as well. I can see just across the, the border into Dorset, there's dairy farm over there. I can see, I can see corn and wheat on the, on the Hampshire side. So you are surrounded by other farmland as well, aren't you? We are, yeah. Um, and we're really lucky here because we've got a really active farm cluster group, which has formed for the past, has been formed for about the past, I don't know, probably four or five years now, um, which is, it's facilitated by the Game Wildlife Trust and the local farmers get together and they decide for themselves what sort of priorities they've got for improving wildlife on their farms. But Martin Down is like the sort of centre of it, so it's called the Martin Down Farm Cluster. And so they've picked up on priorities like turtle dove, for example, small blue butterfly, uh, and they're doing things on their farms to try and encourage the species to spread out from Martin Down onto the farmland. So, you know, sort of brimming over into the countryside, if you like. So um, down in Martin Village, one of our farmers has um, built a pond uh, and then with the chalk that he dug out digging the pond he's made a lovely butterfly bank and we collected some kidney vetch seed up here on the down which has now been sown on, on his bank. So as we talked last time about um, that getting the wildlife back out in the countryside because the Martin Down farm cluster they named it specifically after this place they recognized the value of getting these pollinators and these turtle doves back out into the, their farms didn't they? Yeah absolutely and, and actually some of the farms themselves are already quite rich in wildlife. They've got species that we haven't got here. Um, for example, uh, there's some fly orchid on, on one of the farms. Uh, and lots of them have got barn owls nesting. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on on those farms besides sort of, it's not just dependent on Martin Down. They do have nice bits existing there already, but um, they can improve it further uh, by doing the sort of things they're doing now. Yeah, so putting in little ponds, which, I mean, up here on the downs, there's not a lot of streams and rivers, so you'd have little ponds, and they're very important for things like turtle doves to be able to drink in the summer, isn't it? Exactly. They're doing wildflower strips up the sides of fields, they're yeah. improving their hedgerows, they're doing surveys for things like harvest mouse and work with hedgehogs and all sorts of things, aren't they? Absolutely, and uh, sowing pollinator strips down the side of the fields in some cases, and beetle banks. So what's a beetle bank? So beetle bank is, it's, so if you've got an arable field, um, you make a ridge down the middle of it and allow it to sort of become sort of wild, if you like, with sort of grasses and uh, herbs. Uh, and it's basically a refuge for ground beetles, which are an important predator of things like aphids and other pests and disease that you might get on your cereal crops. So it's actually, you know, it's not just good for wildlife, it's providing a service to the farmer as well. And that's the thing, so I talked last time about nature-based solutions, and so we've, you know, we talked a bit about carbon sequestration in the, uh, in all the scrub and the grasslands that takes in the carbon and locks it away. Um, this sort of habitat can uh, make it cooler, 
because the uh, all the vegetation absorbs some of the heat, can make the actual cooler, so it actually can reduce daytime temperatures in some places. But those things like the pollinators, clearly for pollinating their crops, and as you say, those those natural predators eating the bugs and things that on their crops, which is really important. And it's far from anything else. I mean, clearly it reduces the amount of pesticides they have to put on their ground. Um, but in general, once they've built the bank, nature takes over that little bit and it works for free most of the time, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and we haven't mentioned also, obviously, the farmers are also interested in things like grey partridge. Mm. So they do a lot of um, work while well, monitoring them and providing, you know, sort of space on their farm for them. Well, grey partridge is the, is the native partridge. It's a bit like a small pheasant, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, and people have introduced over time the red leg partridge right. constant because um, it relies less on um, some of the insects at certain times of year. It, it seems to do a lot better than grey partridge. Grey partridge needs quite specialist habitat, um, but the red leg partridge, which um, they like to introduce for shooting and stuff like that, they need far less sensitive habitat, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Um, perhaps also worth mentioning, I mean, grazing land um, with lots of herbs in tends to be um, more productive in drought years. Mm. So you get, you know, you're, you're not gonna, it, the grass stops growing when it gets too hot and dry and you, you're sort of, you're not gonna get as much um, forage for your animals. Um, whereas if you're, if you're sort of trying to recreate a more natural uh, grassland, then it's got, whilst it may not be as productive overall, it's um, more reliably productive, if you see what I mean. Uh, there's a lot of interest in arable reversion, for example, which is turning arable fields back into uh, grasslands and more natural grasslands. And that's the thing, when we talk about arable, we're talking about the areas where they plant their crops, so they're ploughed every year and the, the crops are put in like corn or beans or oilseed rape, and that's arable land. And then they have the pasture, which is the grassland, but that's quite often improved grassland. Yeah. I mean, can you say what improved grassland yeah, is? So, so Farmers uh, in the past certainly would have ploughed up grassland and uh, re-sown it with things like uh, perennial ryegrass, which is you know fast-growing uh, sort of grass, which provides a lot of uh, nutrition for the animals. And at the same time, they've added fertilisers to make that grow more lush and more more quickly. Uh, on wetland sites, they might have put drainage in to improve the drainage. Um, I mean, the thing about Martin Down is it hasn't been improved, or at least most of it hasn't been uh, improved. There is a small bit which was ploughed up after the war, mm. um, but the rest of it has been more or less as it is for probably a thousand years or more. And that's the thing with improvement, it is for agricultural use to increase the productivity of the land. Uh, so looking at that field over there with the dairy cattle in, that field over there is quite very green, as you can see, it's quite green here, but it's very green and that's probably ryegrass. And it's probably in terms of the species of plants in that field might have half a dozen at most, mightn't it? Yeah. yeah it's as we look contrast. at this patch of grassland in front of us. Yeah, so if you look down here, well first of all it's not dominated by grasses. There are probably more herbs than there are grasses in terms of the area of leaf. But in here we've got lots of kidney vetch flowering at the moment, which is a fantastic plant for bees. It's also the small the food plant of the small blue butterfly. Uh, which lays its eggs on the flowers. We've got chalk milkwort here, flowering now. It's got 
white flowers, but they also produces blue ones and purple ones. These are the leaves of rough hawkbit. So in a few weeks time, there'll be lots of yellow sort of dandelion-like flowers of the, of the hawkbit. Also loved by uh, pollinators. And I could go on. I mean, there, there's probably, in this small area, there are probably 30 or 40 species. And on the side of the whole, how many plant species we've got in here? Oh, God, now you got me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's probably in the hundreds, isn't it? Something like that, yeah. yeah. And we talked about pollinators, and that's probably, you know, if you include the flies and the bees and the moths and butterflies all together, you know, there's going to be several hundred species, aren't there? I would have thought pushing a thousand, probably, yeah. if you're including all of those, yeah. Because you've got quite a range of species. You've got, how many species of bumblebee have you got on the site? Um probably about a dozen something like that and out of a total of bumblebees for the whole of britain uh, i think it's about 22 species um you know that number you've got here is you know a huge amount of the yeah. population you know, so the we've species got, i suppose roughly half of them i suppose and um i mean there are probably what six or seven species of bumblebee which are pretty sort of widespread ubiquitous if you like mm. um and then the others are, are, are more local. So we've got quite a lot of those local species. Um, for example, um, Bombus humilis, uh, the brown banded carder bee, um, which is just, the queens are late emerging and they're sort of around now and visiting flowers like this kidney vetch here. Um, but also we've got a lot of the cuckoo bees, which I think is always a sign of a healthy bumblebee population. Yeah. If you've got the, the cuckoo that, um, just like the cuckoo bird lays its eggs in the nest of a different species of bumblebee yeah. and allows that bumblebee colony to rear its young. So we've got um, Bombus repestris, the field cuckoo bee, which is, uh, it goes on to the nests of Bombus lapidarius, the red-tailed bumblebee, for yeah. example, which is probably the commonest one here. But we've also got three or four other cuckoo species. So the bumblebees are a bit like honeybees in the way they have males and females and workers and the worker well males and queens probably the best thing to say because yes. the, all the feet all the workers are female aren't they yes so uh, similar in that regard but different in that the queen honeybee lives for maybe about five years mm. um, whereas each queen bumblebee um, it uh, hibernates over the winter and sets up a new colony in the spring which they've just been doing now uh, and then they'll be producing workers which are uh, out foraging for, for the nest. And then at the end of the summer, um, they will be producing new queens and males, uh, which will, he'll mate, and the, the, the new queens will then overwinter, the old queens will die. Yeah. And we're talking about the, the range of plants here, and that's very, particularly the flowering plants, what you're calling the herbs, um, because I mean, there are some solitary bees which only go on one type of flower, or one flower. Yeah. So there's you get scabious out here, and there's a couple of bees that only go on that. Yeah. So there's the, the red bartsia bee that goes a red bartsia. Yeah. The large scabious mining bee is the one that goes on the field scabious, yeah. which is quite rare. And um, but the yeah. um, the honey bees and bumblebees, they because they are out all through the year, they need pollen and nectar all the yeah. way through the year, starting from. I presume you haven't got much willow here, have you? So there are a few actually. Um, dandelions are really important in the sort yeah. of March April period for the queens and then it's sort of cowslips um, and then we really get going in the summer when you get the kidney vetch, the horseshoe vetch, bird's foot trefoil, all of those sort of pea family plants yeah. are really important for 
bumblebees, the pollen in, that they produce is ideal for raising young bees, basically. Hmm. Um, but actually, perhaps also important here is we have a, a lot of flowers that are flowering late in the season. In fact, there was a study done fairly recently which suggested that on farmland, late flowering plants were really important in terms of um, the survival of bumblebees on farmland. And gardens were important. In, if you were close to a garden, which has flowers often late into the end of the summer, um, you were more likely to have uh, bumblebee colonies on that farmland adjacent to the gardens. And here, we've got quite a few species which flower late, like well, field scabious is one, uh, small scabious, and perhaps more importantly, devil's bit scabious, yeah. which flowers right into September. And if you come up here then, and look at those flowers, well, for a start, they've got um, the second brood of Donis blue butterflies visiting mm. them, but also they've got loads of male bumblebees that are um, produced at the end of the season and new queens visiting those for nectar and pollen, fattening themselves up, ready for hibernation. And the males are basically being, getting ready just to do that mating flight and yeah. then their job's done. So and... I always think of the males as being lazy so-and-sos because <laughs> <laughs> they just spend their time drinking and then looking for a mate basically <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and with the, i mean where the where you've got bumblebees in a colony because the, the, the colony will persist through the winter they all their honey they produce is to get them through the winter isn't it but they when it gets to the end of the autumn they just kick all the males out because yeah. they're dead weight yeah yeah <laughs> useless <laughs> So have you got any particular favourite pollinators on here? I've got a soft spot for a solitary bee uh, called Osmia bicolor, which I think is the red-tailed mason bee. Yeah. And um, I love it because, well, there's loads of them here. It's not, it's fairly rare, I think, um, It, but it, it nests in old snail shells. Yeah. And I can tell you a story. When I first started work here, I was also teaching primary school at the same time, and I was picking up some snail shells for a project at school and uh, after a few minutes I noticed this buzzing in my pocket <laughs> and it was these bees I pulled the shells out and these these uh, quite quite cross but absolutely innocuous yeah. bees emerged and uh, sort of told me off basically um, but not only that you also see these bees this time of year sometimes flying around carrying blades of grass yeah. about sort of two or three centimeters long and they're using these to put on top of their snail shell where their nest is to to hide it i just think it's amazing what they do it's yeah. fabulous i mean that, that was one species we talked quite a lot about Alison down because they're, they're there as oh, well right, yeah and it shows how typical they are of this sort of habitat this chalk chalk and limestone grassland and there's one reason why they're hiding it you think well, why are they hiding the shell but there are species of solitary wasp which are sometimes bees, which are cuckoo species on those. Yeah. So they'll go and seek out the shell and lay their egg. They'll, they might destroy the egg of the host, the red-tailed mason bee, and then lay their own egg on it and then just go and try and, that's why they're trying to hide them, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. So pollinators, I mean, have we, do we think there's a best pollinator amongst all the pollinators on here? Good question. Um, well, yeah, different pollinators have all got different sort of uh, plus points and negatives and um so if you think of flies for example if you, if you look at, if you walk through uh the down in july august say there'll be a massive wild carrot mm. and they'll be covered in flies hoverflies 
and other sorts of flies and also um, soldier beetles yeah and so they must be doing a good job of pollination because there's just so many of them mm. uh, so flies are definitely good pollinators but then when you think about it they're often sitting on that flower and running about on that flower but do they actually go from flower to flower very much so are they transferring a lot of pollen in that process well i think they must be because i mean basically the flowers essentially use nectar as the lure to get the insects in and it's almost like a payment for moving their pollen around isn't it yeah, so with orchids they work sometimes with particular species of insect and they try and track them in and they stick the pollen bearing bits on them they're called plinia where they and you sometimes find them stuck to the several stuck to the tongue of a bee these big yellow things yeah and they're in a certain position and they should line up with the receptor on the on the plant they go to next shouldn't they yeah so there's a lot of evolution gone on to make that happen hasn't there um so yeah some some plants require sort of very specific pollinators and others are more general uh, and i guess that a lot of the things like the wild carrot are probably quite general in terms of what can what can uh, pollinate them some of the more complex flowers we're talking about pea type flowers here these vetches and things they've got much deeper so the yeah. nectaries are further deeper in the flowers yeah. so they so, rely on the longer so i'd species. suggest that bees are the thing for those flowers wouldn't you yeah quite often um and there's also the quite different ways in which they pollinate things or they collect the pollen now some people think honeybees are very good because they're very busy and they, but they don't do what is one thing called buzz pollination absolutely yeah tomatoes Bum yeah bumblebees um we'll mention tomatoes there, actually <laughs> bumblebees and some of the solitary bees when they get on a plant they they vibrate their wing muscles and do a little buzz and that's the only way that the pollen's released you hear it on roses yeah with um, like the early bumblebee yeah and some plants like tomato plants they need to be buzz pollinated yeah. don't they otherwise they won't release their pollen absolutely i used to work in a at a research station where we grew tomatoes and bumblebees are brought in in boxes to pollinate the tomatoes yeah. uh, and they, they they actually bite the cone on the on the tomato flower and then buzz and that releases this shower of pollen so if you've got your tomato plants in your in your greenhouse have the door open and hopefully those bumblebees will come in and pollinate it yeah honeybees won't do that no and bumblebees i mean some of the bumblebee species have got much longer tongues than honeybees so they can reach into flowers that honeybees can't reach mm. uh, for example broad bean for example has got deep flowers red clover um, foxgloves those sorts of flowers um, that's not to say that honeybees won't sometimes be able to visit oh, those yeah. though because um, there is sometimes bumblebees particularly the uh, buff-tailed bumblebee which has got a short tongue mm. and can't reach the nectar in broad beans or comfrey for example will bite a hole at the base of the flower and they cheat don't they and they'll they'll actually get the nectar out without pollinating the flower yeah because they're going around the back yeah and then the honeybees will catch on to that and they'll use the same holes that have been bitten by the bumblebees yeah so if you get in your garden and you go and see particularly these deep flowers you look at the look down the base of the tube sometimes you can see these holes yeah. where somebody's just tried to sneak in and steal that steal the nectar that's it but i think it's probably safe to say that the value of the pollinators of someone like there is the big suite of them i don't probably yeah. they'll do different things i mean bumblebees are really good yeah uh, and there are lots of them and they're visiting loads of flowers all the time so they're, they're moving pollen around a lot um, but 
they have got this really well adapted system for collecting pollen. Yeah. So they pack that pollen into their, uh, on their back legs out of the way yeah. and they groom themselves off. So they're actually removing a lot of that pollen from their hairy bodies uh, and making it less available to the plants. Yeah. Whereas some of the solitary, the solitary bees don't have that mechanism, do they? Yeah. So they're relying on having a hairy uh, sort of underside to the ab to their thorax and abdomen yeah. to collect that pollen. And so they're probably actually more effective pollinators because they're not packing that pollen away. Yeah. We haven't mentioned moths. So yeah, I think I love moths and I think they're very underrated. They're very beautiful things when you get to see them. But because they're, most of them only come out at night, they're just hidden, aren't they? They are, but they, pollination does go on at night. Yeah. Um, I think there was a study fairly recently which showed that in farmland, um, they, they collected a load of moths and they had the pollen, they were able to recover the pollen from a whole range of species on those moths. So sort of on the quiet, they're doing a really good job as well. Yeah. And the thing that moths need is a huge range of food plants because you'll find some moths feed on the grass, some just feed on one species of plant, some feed on the tree and hedgerow species. And if you've got that range of species of food plant, you'll have a range of moths and hopefully they'll pollinate your crops and your garden plants. Yeah, so, so at the end of the day, what we need is lots of everything really, isn't it? <laughs> Lots of everything, yeah. But as I say, that's the beauty of something like this. It's this massive diversity of plants, insects, birds, and it is trying to, as you know, with the farm clusters, get it back out into this wider countryside. And it's very clear that that's what the surrounding landowners are trying to do, isn't it? Yeah. No, I think we've been through uh, a few years of sort of a lot of negativity about conservation and uh, the state of wildlife in this country, but we're reaching a stage perhaps where we could turn a corner. Uh, and let's hope that that does happen. Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, if, I think if we don't do it now, we never will. Well, it's been great coming out and meeting you, uh, Mike. So, you know, real pleasure for you to host us here. It's a lovely site to come to. You've picked a great day to come. So that was great hearing all about Martindale and the farm clusters and the amazing amount of pollinators that you can find here. Yeah, as we can see, this, the, the turf here is just packed with flowers, isn't it? I am, I am very excited. I have been running around like a small child taking pictures of everything I've seen today. <laughs> it's a fantastic sight and a beautiful day. So you've seen a few different butterflies, haven't you? I have. I've seen green hair streak, brimstone, the whites. We've seen grizzled skippers, small blues, Adonis blues. Yeah, loads. But we're definitely, I, mean, I was talking to Mike about moths. I think we'll have to do a podcast about moths at some point because I think they're beautiful. And they've got some lovely names. They are beautiful, and they're, but they're also really confusing. How many species of moth is there? Uh, two and a half thousand, something like that, if you include yeah. all the little tiny ones. Yeah. You know? I mean, my garden, I'm approaching 100 species just for my garden. Okay. But we did see that, I think we saw just now, it looked like one of the skippers, but actually I think it was what Mother Shipton moth. I love those because they, they're called Mother Shipton moths because they've got a face of a witch on their wings. Yeah, Mother Shipton is a, a prophetess, seeress, whatever you want to call them. It wouldn't really call her a witch. I think some people think she's a witch, <laughs> but she lived in a cave in Yorkshire somewhere, I think. And she had the classic hook nose, hook chin. Mm -hmm. um, and she was very well known in that area. Um, and if you look carefully at the wings of the mother ship to moth, it looks like the outline of a witch's face on both wings. Yeah. 
but they're day flying moths which is yeah, quite so, amazing and i do get them quite confused with some of the skippers and actually if we're talking about moths being different to butterflies they're not really if you look to you know a tree of evolution they're not all over on a separate branch somewhere they're just back in the middle they're just day flying moths butterflies okay so i love some of the names of some of these moths i like one i found up here a few years ago was the chimney sweep moth and that's called a chimney sweep because it's it's black with little white bits on its end that looks like <laughs> dust and it was really cool but there's some lovely names it's like the true lover's knot uh flame shoulder the Merville de jour i don't know what that means somebody might tell us um <laughs> the, the mother shipton um the uncertain that's a lovely one yeah you know because they when they first saw it i think oh it's a bit nondescript let's call it the uncertain there's some lovely yeah. names amongst that lot so i don't have any facts about pollinators today but i have a fact about grass do you want to hear it hit me do you know what the tallest growing grass is well down round here clearly it's coming up to about my just over my knee so that's about 30 40 50 centimeters mm -hmm reeds are grasses aren't they as well yep. so they get about six seven eight foot tall mm -hmm. is it one of those Clearly no. not these here so the actual largest growing grass is the dragon bamboo right because bamboo is a grass and it grows up to 40 meters that's huge isn't it that is absolutely massive and in asia they use bamboo which is essentially grass for all their scaffoldings for building buildings it's amazing how strong it is and how big it grows. Bamboo is also the fastest growing plant in the world, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. How fast is that, Carly? It grows on average, some, some species of bamboo grow on average between 35 to 40 inches a day. Wow, that's impressive, isn't that's it? That's nearly a metre a day. Yeah. And, and grass is also the most numerous plant on the planet, and it's found on every continent. Even Antarctica. Even Antarctica. Because why it's so suited to these grazing areas, because actually the, the flowering plants and the bushes around here, the growing point is in the tip. So if you think about, we're talking about tomatoes just now, you let tomatoes grow to a certain height and then you nip the top out mm -hmm. and then it makes it go bushy because uh, the, the growing point is in the tip of the plant. The growing point in the grass is at the bottom of the plant. So when an animal comes and grazes all the time, it'll keep growing. Yeah. That's why grasses love being grazed. Yeah. So. I came on a walk here last year um, during lockdown, but it was when we were allowed to go out for a little walk. Mm. And it's amazing. You see all the butterflies, you see all these bumblebees, but we also found some things called ichneumon wasps. Yeah, the ichneumons, they're, they're in this group um, that there's these masses of parasitic type wasps. Now, they're not true parasites, are they? No, because parasites don't kill the host. Yeah, that's the thing. They don't kill the parasites. So if we've got tapeworm in us, they shouldn't kill us. They'll just sit there, yep. you know, eating our food, but not necessarily affecting us too much. And that's what a parasite does. Mm -hmm. These are sometimes called parasitoids. And they're a bit more like a predator in the fact that they'll lay their egg in something and then that'll hatch out and that'll eat the inside out of the caterpillar or whatever it's laid on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Well, it's quite gross, but absolutely fascinating. I find it really cool. And there's some of these, particularly with aphids, there's some of these little tiny wasps which lay eggs inside aphids. They're a really good way of controlling them. You can actually buy them to put in your greenhouse. To they control. must be tiny. They're absolutely tiny. And a lot of them, 
don't need males at all. Oh. They just produce fertile eggs, which produce more females. And some of these species, they're only females and they never found a male. So every single member of this species they found has been a female. Well, to some people that might sound good, but I quite like my husband, so. <laughs> so this month, if you have a look at the Looking After Nature blog, you will find loads of great pollinator resources that we have put together that can help you make your gardens more pollinator friendly. Don't forget to check out our social media pages for more great updates and lots of information about our great pollinating insects. And please remember to rate our podcast on iTunes. And thanks once again for joining us. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Howard. See you next time. <laughs>